If you like what you hear, come and visit me at youtube.com slash tiptoe the tank and see this content in all its glory. We will speak of the Empire, of Dowd, the murder of an Empress, of Corvo and his heartbreak. But first we look beyond, to a place where time means little and the tragic everydays of man mean even less. It is undefinable and unknowable, infinite and in perpetual change. It is the void. And someday this place will devour all the lights in the sky. Enigmatic deities have, in ages past, manifested the void to mankind, as it so longs for some form of representation. Tragically, we do not know the names or stories of these ancient deities, but imagine the tales that could be told of them. There may still be cultures that know and worship these dead gods, but in this story, we will know of one. 4,000 years ago, on the isle we now know as Circanos, the remnants of a god were found high in the mountains, in a spot where the void and reality weaved one tapestry. This eye of the dead god granted those exposed to it a heightened perception of the world around them. Some were even able to see the overlaps of the void itself here. This group called themselves the Envisioned, and took to studying the eye of the dead god, eventually becoming cult-like worshippers and agents of the Void. The Void's desire for an agent manifested to the Envisioned as a prophecy in the stars. Observing and honoring this prophecy, these ancient people abducted a 15-year-old boy and took him into the Void, to a place called Ritual Hold. A most heinous ceremony was held, a human sacrifice. The young man was drugged into a stupor, laid upon an altar, and an artifact called the twin-bladed knife was used to cut his throat. His body remained there, in ritual hold, encased in stone, but a spiritual manifestation of him roamed freely as a new godlike being of the void, the Outsider. His memories and mortal name were stripped from him, only held within his mark, something only the dead can read. The cult, the Envisioned, continued to serve the void, to serve the Outsider. They would guard ritual hold, so that his body would remain unharmed there. The blade, that twin-bladed knife, could undo their new god, it could kill his physical body. The Envisioned who stayed close to the Void began to change. Their flesh became stone of the Void, a reward for their diligence and loyalty. These unspeaking, undying guardians stalked the mountain paths around the entrance gate to Ritual Hold, phasing between reality and the Void itself, keeping all away from where the Outsider's body lay. They were bestowed the name the Envisioned, and those within the mountain that remained human instead became known as the Cult of the Outsider. But what of this new god, the Outsider? What sort of deity did he prove himself to be? Well, perhaps not what one might expect. He was not good nor evil. He became curious, selective. Not an outright liar or a fiend, but oh, he delighted in word games and dancing about the truth. He would grace those who piqued his interest with his mark, gifting them the ability to harness supernatural powers associated with the Void. But the mark of the Outsider quite often proved to be a burden or a tool of chaos rather than a blessing. The Outsider himself typically offered little in the way of preference or guidance to those he marked. He was often content in staying neutral, perhaps issuing a goad or a taunt, and just watching what happened afterwards. Throughout the centuries, independent groups and denominations cropped up around the Isles, which worshipped the Outsider. Eventually, those groups and other faiths 
were snuffed out through bloody conflict with the established religious order of the empire after it was officially founded. But the cult of the outsider remained elusive. Their base in the mountain an almost mythic secret, even from those who would seek it out. The cult of the outsider kept a close watch on the outside world. They kept records and accumulated knowledge. They watched for promising recruits to bring into the mountain. To walk near the void, to become one of the envisioned, was considered an ascension. And now we speak of a more modern time. The mountain is called Shinderi Peak, and a mining rush has begun. Vast amounts of silver were found. An entire complex and a small town was built to accommodate the new venture. For perhaps a decade, it was prosperous. But some very unusual things began to occur that eventually turned insidious. Reality would crack open, the void seeping out. Miners and workers began to hallucinate strange things. Suffocations began. They suffered headaches, nausea, and memory loss. Then entire sections of the mines seemed to disappear into thin air, only to reappear later. Workers went missing. Structures went missing. Eventually, the disappearances would last for days at a time. The air became poisonous in some areas of the tunnels, and the Shinderi Mining Company refused to acknowledge the claims. The workforce fled. The facilities were abandoned. The entirety of it left to be reclaimed by nature, and the events that took place there were widely lost to memory and public record. But deep within the mountain, the cult of the outsider remained undisturbed by the madness of the void. Walking beside the envisioned, they continued their study and worship, ready to stand against any who would threaten their god. Did you make your way through Dishonored and, like me, came out with an ultra-high chaos rating? It's okay. Killing people with whale oil tanks is still a form of creative expression. I accept you for who you are. And the second time through, it's much easier to not kill everything with a pulse. But there are more challenges to the gameplay of Dishonored than just high or low chaos. In fact, there's a huge number of ways that you can choose to approach it. Let's go over just a few, and maybe one of them will pique your interest. Clean hands. No one can die. Meaning, you can't kill anyone. Not High Overseer Campbell, not Dowd, not the Pendleton twins. I know, it's tempting. But no murder is allowed. Although, no one ever said anything about a happy little accident happening, right? Reaper. The opposite of clean hands. Everyone must die by your hand. No one is safe. It's a pretty brutal way to play the game, especially since, well, some of these people, they just wanted to be your friend. Shadow. Never detected. You can kill and spare anyone you would like, but no one can see that you're there. If someone catches you, then reload that save, my friend. Situational awareness is key, as all it takes is one wrong blink or a misstep for someone to spot you. Do you think you could climb Dunwall Tower without being detected? Well, then how about this? Ghost. Never detected. And no killing allowed. Now we're getting a little bit more complicated, aren't we? You can incapacitate as required, but use your items sparingly. You might need them later on in a pinch. Mostly flesh and steel. The only power you are allowed to use is your blink. No dark vision, possession, bend time, Devouring Swarm, Shadow Kill, all you get is your blink. And if that doesn't sound too tough for you, well then let's take it a step farther, shall we? Flesh and Steel. No powers allowed, none. 
those runes you keep finding, you might as well give them to Granny Rags because in your hands, they're just weird gross bones that are probably covered in something unsanitary. Now, those are just a few ways that you can choose to play Dishonored. If those all sound too easy for a master assassin like yourself, don't worry. We're going to be back with more challenges very soon. Hey chat! Do you want to play a game? Vera More is better known as... A. Delilah Copperspoon B. Lady Boyle C. Billy Lurk or D. Granny Rags And the answer is D. Granny Rags Tivia, Morley, Gristal, and Sarkanos. These are the Isles which would become the Empire, but they are not the world. The Empire was birthed from a bloody conflict, the War of Four Crowns. Gristal, which homes Dunwall City, was the ultimate victor. Gristal became the crown of the new Empire, and Dunwall its capital city. More conflict ensued, as one might expect. Eighty years after the War of Four Crowns, a powerful religious order called the Abbey of the Everyman began a crusade which became known as the Rectification War. The Abbey believed that the universe was full of hostile forces intent on seeking out the doom of mankind. The most paramount of threats came from the being called the Outsider. Studying him was heretical, and worshipping him was a death sentence. The Rectification War was touted as a unifying one, in which all other false religions would be snuffed out. It lasted for all of three years. A siege at the city of White Cliff on the Isle of Gristal ended the war. Heretics, witches, servants of the Outsider were killed on sight. After the siege of White Cliff ended, the Abbey of the Everyman officially took a great seat of power as the official religion of the Empire. But the union of the Isles into an empire and the establishment of an official religion did not act as a binding agent between governments. In particular, one of the islands, the place called Morley, viciously fought the oppressive rule of the Empire, keen on maintaining its autonomy. Morley fought bitterly against assimilation during the War of Four Crowns. When Morley pushed back against oversight and command, the monarch responded by tightening its grip upon the island. The influential and wealthy industrialists of Gristal had for a long time exploited the people of Morley for cheap labor and their resources. And this hostility saw with it repeated attempts by Morley assassins to kill the Emperor or Empress of the Empire. 175 years after the War of Four Crowns, the Morley Insurrection began, a violent uprising against the monarch. Morley rebels made their way to Dunwall and murdered the Empress. The insurrection lasted a little bit over a year. The Empire eventually brought Morley to heel and a brutal famine began in Morley, forcing many of the natives to flee their homeland. In Gristal, the home of the monarch, Dunwall Tower, was heavily fortified and a new position in the court was created out of necessity. Royal Protector, someone to always stand at the side of whoever ruled over the Isles. But remember, the Empire, the Isles, they are not the world. Let's look to the east. To a continent shrouded in mystery and danger, where explorers oft venture and forfeit their lives, where ancient civilizations have risen and crumbled with naught of their story left behind. A land of dark magics, bizarre wildlife, and perilous earth. Pendicia. Oh, the heart yearns to know your secrets. 
and that sentiment of longing curiosity was shared by some of the minds of the empire, explorers, philosophers, hunters, even the abbey of the every man made ventures across the sea to touch upon Pandicia. Once in a generation, a great effort is mounted to build a colony there, in hopes of this someday growing into a port city to rival Dunwall itself. But to date, these attempts have all ended in madness and failure. One of the first documented expeditions we know of comes from the journey of Lord Preston Moray and his wife, Vera Moray. Though we don't know exactly what happened to the expedition at Pandicia, Vera Moray returned to Bristol quite mad. She'd taken an interest in the bone charms, runes, and black magics of Pandicia. You see, she'd caught the eye of the outsider, who was still a worshipped deity within Pandicia. Vera Moray was gifted the outsider's mark, she was institutionalized a few years after their return. She lost her vision, her status in higher society. She murdered her husband and used his carcass to make bone charms and black magic reagents. She took to living in the slums of Dunwall and became Granny Rags. From the writings of a man named Anton Sokolov, we get further insight into what it was like to travel to Pandicia. The voyage across the sea was long and fraught with danger Sokolov lost half his crew before reaching the shores of Pandicia through sickness, phenomenal weather, infighting, and poisoning from fish that flew through the waves of the sea. More of the crew yet died during the cliff climb to reach the accursed place. Sokolov had a frightening obsession with the outsider. But alas, Sokolov could not find the outsider even here, unlike Vera More. Sokolov was far too uninteresting to garner the favor of the outsider. He tried his best, but in the end, he simply disgusted the outsider. At the expedition's end, only a handful of Sokolov's crew made it back to the Isles alive. There had long been songs and poems recited about diseases on the continent that could spell disaster for the unprepared masses of other lands. Let us touch on one more ill-fated journey to Pandicia the venture of High Overseer Scott Grafton. Though little is known of what took place during his quest, his fate works in tandem with songs and poems that already existed of Pandicia. Grafton was the first overseer to forge into Pandicia, and he returned quite sickly. The High Overseer died of what would become known as the Rat Plague. Records were kept of his death, confirming the existence of a lethal plague on Pandicia to the Abbey of the Everyman. And for those with knowledge and power, this plague would one day be used in a most cruel and brutal plot. Ready for another question? Dowd led a gang called the A. Hatters, B. Whalers, C. Brigmore Witches, or D. Knives of Dunwall. And the answer is B. The Whalers. Now don't go away, we'll be back with more lore in just a few minutes. On the thirteenth day of the month of ice in the year 1795, Dowd was born. He was born in Circanos, but even the circumstances of his birth are whispers of the dark. His mother was supposedly a witch from Pandicia, who was kidnapped and taken prisoner on a pirate ship. Dowd was the product of that imprisonment. And yet, his mother did not submit to this fate if you believe the tales. She was an agent of the outsider bearing his mark. She killed many aboard that ship and she took it for herself. 
Dowd spent his childhood traveling about the aisle from town to town. Even at a young age, he was quick-handed and smart-witted, a natural with a weapon. This was noticed, and Dowd was taken away from his mother. From there, he fades back into fable. Though as a teenager, Dowd was known to have landed in Dunwall, where he moved unseen through shopkeeps and the city watch, like a reaper through wheat. As Dowd grew into a young man, he honed his skills as a thief and began to study anatomy. Then, he began to study the occult. Around the aisles, he searched out altars to the void and the outsider never quite knowing exactly what it was that he was searching for. He spent a season studying at the Academy of Natural Philosophy and also spent time counting the Brigmore witches as allies, if you can believe that. In his mid-twenties, Dowd finally found what he had been searching out. The Outsider himself appeared to the blossoming rogue. Dowd took the mark of the Outsider, elevating him from a force to be reckoned with into a nigh-unstoppable assassin. Dowd became a killer for hire. His services were highly sought by those in power. With the mark of the Outsider, Dowd could flash through the air, bend time and space to his will, and peer through the void to find secrets and targets. Dowd began to collect followers, fellow assassins that, through his mark, he could empower with lesser abilities that too made them fearsome killers. The gang Dowd built up became known as the Wailers. He recruited and trained them all himself. A decade after Dowd received the mark from the outsider, a young woman very suddenly came to Dowd's attention. Billy Lurk. Billy was the daughter of an islander from Pandicia, a foreigner to Gristol. Billy grew up in Dunwall in a hostile home her mother took to drink. Billy was beaten and uncared for, so she developed skills to provide for herself. She abandoned her mother quite young and began to roam the aisles with a group of other youths who were trying to get in with an established gang to make their coin. Thievery and even murder were her trades. As a teen, Billy fell in love with another of the group, a young woman named Deirdre. The two were thick as thieves. It was the first time Billy had experienced love in her life. So, when Deirdre was killed in the streets by the son of the Duke of Circanos, Billy in turn murdered the royal miscreant. It was all just a chance encounter. The Duke of Circanos was visiting Dunwall with his sons. And the killing of Deirdre was probably an accident, stemming from a cruel display of privilege. Billy was forced underground. She was actively hunted by the Dunwall City Guard. Even troops from Circanos traveled to Dunwall to search her out. All of her old thieving pals and all the groups she came in contact with in the underground rejected her. Her crime was too public. Her face was known around the city. Even after months of eluding the city guard, the chase was not abandoned. It was really only a matter of time before Billy Lurk was caught and punished for the murder of the Duke's son. But... One fateful morning, as Billy lurked about the still dark streets of Dunwall, she saw an assassination take place, three actually, at once, by one man, Dowd. He killed them so quickly that she didn't even see his blade come out. Across Dunwall, she followed Dowd into his territory, into a seemingly abandoned building full of weapons and practice dummies. Here, Dowd confronted the young Billy, observed her reaction to him and his words, seemed there was some potential within Billy Lurk. And that day, she joined the Whalers.
We talked a bit about different challenge run types. Kill no one, kill everyone, never detected, never detected, and no killing, only blink powers allowed, no powers allowed. Each of them are a feat to pull off. But what if we made it just a little bit more difficult? What if we started mixing and matching to really let chaos reign? Reaper Ghost. Everyone dies. You are never detected. No one can escape. But equally as important, no witnesses. By the time you're done with Dunwall, the city literally won't know what hit it. Ghost of mostly flesh and steel. You may kill no one. You may not be detected. And the only ability that you can use is blink. Good luck, friend. I don't think I would stand a chance, but it could be worse. It could be. Reaper, flesh and steel. Everyone must die, but this time, no powers are allowed. Your enemies can see you coming and shake in fear, but no blinking to close the gap. No shadow kill to cover up the evidence. If you want to do that, you gotta do the heavy lifting yourself. Oh, not tough enough? Well, try this out. Reaper shadow of flesh and steel. Everyone dies. You can never be detected. No powers are allowed. I imagine Dowd and Billy Lurk would quite appreciate this style of play. You have to plan your routes, take your time, and plan your brutal takedowns. These are some examples of the mix and match style that you can choose in Dishonored, but you know, you can always make it more challenging. How about no knockouts, no killing, no equipment, and no powers? Or how about adding no HUD allowed as a rule? Or no upgrades, no vendors, no consumables, collect all items, only trickshot kills allowed? Perhaps choose your favorite combo and then turn it into a speed run. The sky is the limit when it comes to the many challenges that you can face in the world of Dishonored. It's time to greet an old friend, is it not? On the 25th day of the month of Nets in the year 1798, Corvo Atano was born in the city of Karnaka on the Isle of Sarkanos, and his life had a happy start, even though he did not hail from wealth or status. A wild and free child on the streets of the city, but hardship did eventually come to Corvo and his family. His father was killed while at work in accident. Corvo and his eldest sister began living rougher lives on the streets of Karnaka. Their mother, Paloma, took comfort in the teachings of the Abbey of the Everyman to cope with her loss. Corvo's sister suddenly vanished when he was still quite young, leaving her fate unknown. But Paloma and Corvo made do. When he was 16 years old, he entered the Blade Verbena an annual tournament which attracted the finest swordsmen from all across Circanos. And at just 16 years old, Corvo Atano won the Blade Verbena. He was offered a rank within the Grand Circonan Guard and his life changed forever. For two years, Corvo served honorably as a soldier, and the Duke of Circanos, Theodonus Abel, became aware of the young man and his skill as a fighter. He was sent to the heart of the Empire, to the city of Dunwall, to serve the Emperor Yuhorn Caldwin. Yuhorn ruled over a time of growth and peace within Dunwall and all the Empire. The Caldwin family rose to power after the assassination of Empress Larissa Oluskir, when no heir was left to take the throne. The Emperor appointed young Corvo as the royal protector of his 12-year-old daughter, Jessamine, as was custom in the courts for all youths who were deemed to be the future of the monarch. And six years later, 
a romance blossomed between Jessamine and Corvo. When Emperor Yuhorn Caldwin died, Jessamine took the throne at the age of 20, with royal protector Corvo Atano ever at her side. An industrial boom began with Empress Jessamine at the helm. As did games of political intrigue and internal power struggles, Empress Jessamine ruled in service to the people of Dunwall and the Empire. She was perhaps what some more strict militant types would call lax or naive. She kept the Dunwall Tower grounds open to citizens. She rejected calls for increased security for herself, and she trusted those within her inner circle to such a degree that she did not question them in motive or in judgment. Two years into her rule, Jessamine gave birth to a daughter, Emily Drexel Leela Caldwin. Born out of wedlock, it was clear who the father of the child was, but Emily was accepted as the future heir to the throne of the Empire, and the issue of her father's identity was never raised. As Emily grew, she was quite close to her father, Corvo, though it's unlikely that she explicitly knew that Corvo was her father. He was a father figure to her, at the least, and a constant presence in her life as she grew. The royal spymaster, Hiram Burroughs, took issue with Jessamine, with Emily, their choices, their chaos. Hiram Burroughs took the role of royal spymaster five years into Empress Jessamine's rule. And when he looked upon Dunwall, he saw a glorious city being rotted from within by the empowered poor and the fetid, growing slums of the city. From every corner, he saw a threat and a scheme. And when he looked at little Emily Caldwin, he saw a spoiled child squandering away her potential as a future empress with games of imagination and the fawning of her mother. The decline of the city was underway, and with an uninterested empress on the throne, a woman who would not confront the pestilence that was the lower class, Hiram Burroughs took initiative that was afforded to a man of his position. As the royal spymaster, he acted with very little oversight. So, to clean up the city, Burroughs commissioned the Plague of Pandicia be brought to Dunwall. Carried by the bully rats native to the foreign place, it was released into the slums under order of royal spymaster Hiram Burroughs. Burroughs was a man of order. Everything happened with purpose. Orders were to be followed. Everything should be predictable. So imagine his frustration when the rat plague began its work and his quarantines failed. His curfews failed. His orders were not heeded by any of the citizens of Dunwall. And the bully rats bred at such a rate that they could not be contained. Therefore, the Rat Plague didn't just kill those in the slums, it spread. And Empress Jessamine refused to order strict quarantines, refused to deport from overpopulated districts, refused to take hard measures that would just punish the most vulnerable in the Grand City. First came the turning of skin to a sickly shade, the inability to consume nutrition. Muscle fades, weight drops, hair falls out before the cough settles in, and once a victim bleeds from their eyes, you cannot help them. The brain is slowly destroyed. Eventually, insects infest the victim and violent outbursts begin, and the whole ordeal is quite contagious. Through weeks into months, medical professionals struggled against the plague. City officials did what they could to stop the spread, but it was so aggressive, and no one had the power really to stop it. The rich were able to buy their way out from the infection for a time, but eventually, the sickness came for them too. Not quite two years after the plague commencement, 
Empress Jessamine sent the royal protector Corvo Atano away from Dunwall to the neighboring isles of the Empire, to the other great cities, to ask for aid and request guidance, anything to help Dunwall and the Isle of Gristol. By now, bodies were beginning to pile up in the streets. With Corvo Atano gone, the Empress was less defended, and the patience of royal spymaster Hiram Burroughs and his inner circle was all but gone. Empress Jessamine commanded Burroughs himself to investigate the source of the plague in the city, quite a conflict of interest. Paranoia and fear joined the fray within Hiram Burroughs. Order was gone, and the royal spymaster demanded order not only that, but now he had to fret over his involvement with the plague's release being discovered. With Corvo out of Dunwall, Burroughs put into play events that would end in Empress Jessamine's death, a royal assassination, and in her place, Burroughs would rule as Lord Regent until Emily Caldwin came of age. Order could still be restored, Dunwall would be remade, and it would be better for it. Hiram Burroughs commissioned the assassination by a man named Dowd. The Knife of Dunwall. On the 18th day of the month of Earth, in the year 1837, Corvo Atano returned two days early from his diplomatic mission around the Isles. No aid would be sent to Dunwall. In fact, rumors of an attack from the Isle of Morley were stirring. Corvo shared in a brief moment of greeting with his daughter and the Empress, before Dowd and his whalers descended. Corvo was left to watch, powerless as the Empress was murdered and his daughter stolen away. How opportune for now Lord Regent Hiram Burroughs, that Corvo Atano knelt over the body of the now-dead Empress. Who else could have killed her if not him? Corvo is to blame for this. He killed the Empress. To Cold Ridge Prison he will go, to mourn his loss in the cold and the dark. Six months of torture will come at the hands of those truly responsible for Jessamine's death. And then finally, in execution. Hi chat, it's me again. You ready for another question? What country was Corvo Atano born in? A. Circanos, B. Tivia, C. Morley, or D. Gristol? Did you get it? The answer is A. Circanos. It's time for another break. Get your snacks ready because when we come back, we're going to conquer the story of Dishonored. It's time for our last question of the day, chat. Where was the Eye of the Dead God found? A. Whitecliff, B. Shinderi Peak, C. Redmore Mountain, or D. Yarrow Bluffs? Ooh, that was a tough one, wasn't it? The answer is B. Shinderi Peak. After the murder of Empress Jessamine Caldwin and the abduction of her daughter Emily Caldwin, while Corvo Atano suffered in Cold Ridge Prison, there were some who conspired against the new Lord Regent Hiram Burroughs. They called themselves Loyalists and desired to see Emily Caldwin returned to Dunwall Tower, her home. They will use their connections to find and remove the Lord Regent's allies, expose his connections, and exploit points of weakness to undermine his rule. Overseer Teague Martin, nobleman Trevor Pendleton, and former Navy Admiral Farley Havelock lead this effort. But acting in service to the Loyalists is another person of importance, a creator named Piero Joplin. The genius mind has been touched by the outsider, is haunted by nightmares of the void. 
Piero has been creating a mask in preparation for Corvo's arrival for several months, though he did not know why he was crafting this mask, just that it would be of great importance. For the Loyalist conspiracy to succeed, they need Corvo Atano. None of the Loyalists believe Corvo actually murdered the Empress, and for their plan to succeed, they need to take custody of Emily Caldwin. Corvo is the only man in the city with the ability and drive to accomplish what is to come. So before his execution can be carried out, the Loyalist conspirator Overseer Teague Martin uses his connections to sneak a key to Corvo in his prison cell. And from there, the once royal protector is able to free himself and meet the ever-dependable Samuel Beechworth, who will act as ferryman and perhaps even friend to Corvo. Samuel sees him to the Old Port District, to the Hound Pit pub, where the Loyalists will convene, conspire, and scheme. The creator, Piero Joplin, has finished his dream-inspired mask. It will serve practical uses, but perhaps of most importance, it will become Corvo's identity. But how will Corvo choose to proceed as he treks through Dunwall in service to the Loyalist plot? For you see, Corvo may choose to act as a ghost in the city, working unseen, never taking a life, a gentle hand in a most terrible place. It would take patience, planning, cunning, and restraint. But Corvo need not return to others the pain placed upon him. Or... All can be made to suffer for what was done to him. Who could possibly be considered innocent in a rat-infested plague hole of a city like this? They took everything from Corvo so he will devastate in return. No one makes it out. He will be the reaper of this cursed city. These guys will be known, and all will fear for their lives. But, oh my, those are choices for you to make, my friend. On this journey, we will hold true to one through line, made much more of mercy than mayhem. Corvo has a night to settle in comfortably for an unfit slumber. Has he fully mourned Jessamine? Did he ever give up hope of finding Emily? In Coldridge, did he accept his death? This man has lost so much, yet readies himself to fight on. What is about to take place around Corvo Atano is most... interesting, is it not? And it would seem that somebody agrees that someone would like to have a conversation with Corvo. It's the black-eyed scoundrel himself, the outsider, here to taunt at the pain of the past, but he offers to Corvo his mark, power to aid him in the journey to come. But this is not all the Outsider gifts to Corvo. Through tormenting his dreams, the Outsider inspired the genius mind of Piero Joplin to create something else. The heart. The Outsider stole the heart away upon completion and brought it into the void. It now holds the spirit of Corvo's beloved. Jessamine speaks to Corvo through the heart, and she too will guide him through what is to come. Is this a cruel gift? Or is it necessary? In Corvo's time away, under Lord Regent Hiram Burrow's rule, the already sick Dunwall has fallen deeper into infection. Life-saving elixirs to stave off the plague are used as currency, therefore a method of control by those in power. Young men found to be ill are used for labor and then killed before their eyes begin to bleed. The slums have been left to flood and to rot. The ultra-wealthy hunker down in their estates. Bodies are left for pickup in the streets, to be taken to now-filling dump sites. 
The brutality and paranoia of the police force feeds off the brutality and paranoia of Lord Regent Hiram Burroughs. Some on the streets speculate that Dunwall has maybe three months left. Or perhaps those left to suffer the plague have three months left. There are two different worlds to be lived within the city. Corvo must retrieve the loyalist overseer Teague Martin from imprisonment and handle the high overseer Thaddeus Campbell. The high overseer is a valued ally of the Lord Regents, part of the scheme to blame Corvo for the murder of Jessamine. Teague Martin's involvement in the release of Corvo was discovered. He's been imprisoned by the Abbey. Corvo sees that he is freed and returned to the safety of the Hound Pits pub. High Overseer Thaddeus Campbell, though a figurehead within the Abbey, is a true sinner. He breaks the seven strictures that the Abbey preaches on a daily basis. He acknowledges this himself and rather treats it like a big joke. A man of the church who lives like royalty. But Corvo does not outright kill him, rather, he chooses to maim Thaddeus with the mark of a heretic. It's fitting, is it not? He will be outcast, denied food and shelter for all the rest of his life, ostracized from society left to walk the abandoned streets of Dunwall alone. Is this not justice? Now, former High Overseer Thaddeus Campbell kept a little black book of his sins and contacts. It will prove invaluable in the hands of Overseer Teague Martin. He can wield it like a weapon against those in power within Dunwall, and leapfrog his way into the now vacant position of High Overseer. How fortunate for the Loyalists. Next is a matter of parliamentary politics, a task from the nobleman Trevor Pendleton. His older brothers, twins Custis and Morgan Pendleton, are corrupt politicians who would never break from the will of Lord Regent Hiram Burroughs, because the Lord Regent pays them very well for their votes. Eliminate the twins, and their votes will pass on to their little brother, Trevor Pendleton. And it just so happens that where the twin brothers are playing is where Emily Caldwin is being held, the Golden Cat, a brothel that frequently caters to the rich and influential, politicians and religious figures. It is a man named Slackjaw from the Bottle Street Gang who reaches out to Corvo. It seems that Slackjaw rather has it out for the Pendleton twins, or maybe just has an interesting sense of justice. Turn the Pendleton twins over to Slackjaw's men, and they will shave their heads, cut out their tongues, and put them to work in their own silver mines. Perhaps it is cruel, but is it more distasteful than murder? Their brother, Trevor Pendleton, reflects that this is a better option rather than having them killed outright, at least this way. Perhaps he will get to see them again one day. Corvo retrieves Emily Caldwin from the Golden Cat and finally takes her back with him to the Hound's Pit pub, where the servants to the Loyalists are ready to receive her. The royal physician Anton Sokolov is the next target, but not for disposal. He is needed for information. Sokolov worked in service to Jessamine during her reign, and now he works for Lord Regent Hiram Burroughs. Sokolov is a troubling character. He has been a driving force in the militarization of the City Watch and the Abbey. He infects and studies people with the rat plague so that he might make a cure for it. Morals and ethics mean very little to this man. But he has information about the secret lover and financier of Lord Regent Hiram Burroughs. It would be a personal strike against him to find and remove the woman, and devastating to the finances of the Lord Regent's office. She is revealed to be the Lady Boyle. 
determining which one is up to you, my friend. But what a grand spectacle of a party is being held at the Boyle estate. Corvo's mask rather helps him to fit right in. The Lady Boyle will not be murdered within her own estate, but rather delivered to imprisonment at the hands of an obsessive man named Timothy Brisby, and this is distasteful. But at least, Lady Boyle will live and be given the chance to free herself and eliminate the Lord Brisby. With the Lord Regent's allies slowly removed from play, his finances ruined, his political circles thrown into uncertainty, and favor within the Abbey all but destroyed, now is the time to strike at the head of the snake. The order from the Loyalist leader, Admiral Havelock, is to kill Lord Regent Burroughs. The man has caused unspeakable horror for so many, such suffering has come at his hand. But is it truly justice to just kill him? To let him die with never suffering the consequences of his conniving made known? Dunwall Tower is heavily fortified and patrolled by a large number of city watch. The tower features a broadcasting system, a means to deliver information and orders to all about the city. An on-site propaganda officer knows one of Hiram Burroughs' dirty little secrets. He likes to make audiograms, confessions to, and justifications for his deeds. In exchange for his life, the propaganda officer will broadcast these confessions for all to hear should Corvo obtain them. This will take power and order away from the Lord Regent, bring the sins of his inner circle to light, and clear Corvo's name. This delightful outcome sees Hiram Burroughs arrested by his own guards for high treason, paving the way for the Loyalists to move in and restore order to return Emily Caldwin to her home in Dunwall Tower. Now is the time for rest and rejoicing. A quite tense merriment ensues at the Hound Pits pub. The completion of their work, the start of a better future for all of Gristal, Emily will be returned to Dunwald Tower with Corvo at her side. Everyone here desires to play a role in the tomorrow to come, some more so than others, though the needs of the future Empress must be placed above all else. With her father serving as her protector, all will be well. But out of fear, paranoia, and greed, Admiral Havelock, Trevor Pendleton, and Overseer Teague Martin do the unthinkable. It's not just a betrayal, it's animalistic. Samuel Beechworth is ordered to poison Corvo, though he only gives him half a dose, saving his life but still rendering him unconscious. The three backstabbing monsters intend to continue forth with the narrative that Corvo Atano murdered the Empress on behalf of Hiram Burroughs. They will be met as heroes, gain legitimacy, and the fear of their conspiracy to overthrow the former Lord Regent will never be made known. They murder everyone that they can reach within the Hound Pits pub before the City Watch is called to investigate the scene. The trio take Emily Caldwin with them back to Dunwall Tower, and poor Samuel Beechworth is absolutely guilt-stricken. But he didn't know what else he could do to spare Corvo's life. Samuel places Corvo into a raft and sets him to float down the canal of a flooded district away from the city watch patrols in hopes that he will recover and find his own way forward. It is the whalers who find Corvo and bring the still ill man before the one who killed the Empress, Dowd, who will not let Corvo go. He is an unknown variable and Dowd does not allow such things within his plans. But while the whalers are well-versed killers, 
Corvo proves to be the better of them all. The Whalers cannot keep a man like him in a cage for long. And now Corvo knows precisely who killed Jessamine. The Knife of Dunwall, Dowd, has had his own ventures and trials to overcome. A mysterious and powerful witch has drawn his attention, turned Billy Lurk against him, threatened the return of Emily Caldwin to the throne, and the guilt of what he did. The murder of Jessamine, it was different. It was wrong. It festered within him, it changed him, and when Billy Lurk, now a woman who was practically family, betrayed him to the witch, Dowd chose to exercise forgiveness and mercy rather than brutal retaliation. He just couldn't continue on that path anymore. Instead, he sent Billy Lurk away, and when Corvo broke free from his imprisonment, Dowd knew that he would be coming for him. The two meet at last in the flooded district and come to blows. It is Corvo Atano who proves the victor in this fight, but in a move that quite surprises him, Dowd asks for mercy. He does not beg, but he tells Corvo that he's had enough killing. Jessamine's murder, it broke something within him. He's lost Billy, himself, and he just wants to leave this city. Corvo grants this request, leaving Dowd to quietly pick himself up and find a new way forward, a new purpose, and a mission across the sea. There are still a few survivors hiding in the Hound Pits pub. They hide away from the city watch that now walk the area and cannot flee until Corvo handles them. Anton Sokolov and Piero Joplin are amongst the survivors and can actually assist in clearing the grounds. Though the two have a troubled past together, these circumstances force a reconciliation. Samuel Beechworth is able to approach the shoreline when it is safe to do so, overjoyed to see Corvo alive and well. The three traders have taken Emily and fled to the island fortress called King Sparrow Island. Admiral Havelock has appointed himself the new regent and commander of the armies of the Empire. Reaching where the men wait in supposed safety proves to be a challenge without raising alarm. High atop the tower, Havelock paces and talks to himself, almost as if trying to justify things to or comfort himself. He has poisoned his cohorts, Trevor Pendleton and Teague Martin. It seems that the new Lord Regent's paranoia and fear of betrayal just couldn't leave well enough alone. And this man will not be allowed to leave this island, not this time. Corvo gives him a moment to speak, and Havelock tries to use his treatment of Emily and the fact that she will be watching his decision against him. Yes, Emily will be watching. Her father, Corvo Otano, cuts down the traitor, Farley Havelock. This man will receive no mercy. And so, this particular tale, it, it's come to an end. Emily Caldwin takes the throne as a young empress with royal protector at her side. It will be a long and difficult road for her, but those who wish her well will aid her along the way. Piero Joplin and Anton Sokolov work together to finally cure the rat plague that has destroyed so much of Dunwall. Survivors of this tale are reunited with family and friends, once thought lost to the cruelty of the world. But what of the man Dowd? And what of Billy Lurk? And the mysterious witch thought cast away into the void? Well, my friends, those are stories for another day.